you are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. So I promised to not talk about 2020 and 2021, but here I am breaking that New Year's resolution. There were many things about 2020 that I'm sure we can all agree we never want to remember again. For me, the term new normal is one of them. I will say, however, in many ways, the world never went back and never will when it comes to certain things we saw and can't unsee. One of them was really evaluating what belonging means and what is the role of our workplace in creating belonging and what belonging means in terms of inclusivity and diversity after the marginalization of people of color and black people became so top of mind to those that were privileged to not face the ramifications of it on their day to day. I think us sitting in our apartments and homes alone was also another way where we really had to reconsider what belonging means in our own lives. Today's guest, Sarah Judd Welch, is a community and organizational designer. She's also the CEO of an innovation consultancy called Sharehold. Her practice is all about redefining and expanding the definition of the word shareholder, and she does that by considering all the pieces of an organization and what their role is of fostering belonging. The company released a really fascinating study about redesigning belonging, and it was really guided by the jolt to the system that was caused by COVID-19, but really looks way beyond just that. I encourage you to check out Sarah, Sharehold, and their report, which can all be found on sharehold.co and on Instagram under the username at shareholdco. As always, I myself love to hear your feedback on the podcast, so you can find me on LinkedIn or email me. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Sarah Judd Welch, all about belonging and innovation. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Hi, Zoya. Thank you so much for having me. So exciting to talk today, but uh, we'll start off with the fact that you are principal and CEO of the innovation consultancy Sharehold, which is focused on people-driven change, which I'm, of course, very excited to talk to you about. But looking back at your trajectory, what I find really interesting is that you started independently consulting about three years out of college, which is both really impressive, but also very unique. (laughs) How are you able to really start your career in such a self-sufficient way? Was that always the plan? Ooh, that's a good question. And to be honest, I think what you're hitting at is sometimes a source of insecurity for me. Um, I did start consulting on my own very young and also started my first company when I was very young. I think I was 25, about to turn 26 at that time. I had known since I was very young that I was going to run a company of my own, probably since I was about 15 or 16 years old. I never imagined it would be this sharehold like what it is today. I thought it would be like a nonprofit or something like that. And I I think I also considered various other careers at at points in time as as well. But I did kind of always know that I was going to be doing my own thing. And I think it's just very much of my nature to be very self-driven, self-sufficient, very exploratory and experimental. 
I certainly never thought I would still be doing this now when I started my first company back in 2012, back then. So I think I'm just as surprised about it as you are. <laughs> um, my um, studies in undergrad at NYU were individualized study at, at Gallatin, which is a program that allows people to create their own major and really self-direct their uh, line of education and career. And I think having that toolkit in my belt from a very young age of like creating my own programs and going after what it was that I wanted to exist really well prepared me for exploring innovation and starting my own practice in that way. And that's sort of how I look at it too, is like um, every project is building and learning and you're continuously pursuing and exploring and building upon the next one. And for us, people who are, I guess, in the innovation industries or specifically women in innovation, the organization, Mm -hmm. the idea of innovation consultancies is nothing really uh, revolutionary. But (laughs) for those that don't know, and maybe even about 10 years ago when you started, was innovation consultancy the practice that you were hoping to achieve or was was it the type of consulting that you were doing? No, actually it wasn't. I started out um, freelancing actually, and I was freelancing in like digital marketing, uh, online community building, digital strategy, some sort of like online janitorial work sometimes, (laughs) Uh, just like basically whatever I could get my hands on. And I certainly never called it innovation. I think I started realizing it was innovation work maybe about five or six years ago. And basically I continued to do a lot of the same work, but just packaged it, named it, um, described it differently as innovation, but it was still very much the same, which was uh, designing new solutions, products, and programs that brought many different types of stakeholders to the table. And then down the line, at some point, you became CEO at Loyal, a community design Mm -hmm. agency. And then after six-ish years, you started shareholds. So Mm -hmm. what sparked your interest in transitioning from one venture to another? What was the real difference between the two? Candidly, Loyal and shareholds are not that different, though um, we realized that we had sort of outgrown the sandbox that we had built for ourselves at Loyal. And what was that? At Loyal, our work was very focused on uh, community design and strategy. And so that meant that oftentimes we were being brought into an organization to like redesign their membership program, create a super user program, build some sort of community program that scaled nationally from scratch. Though what we realized is that oftentimes our work could only be so effective unless we are also transforming the organization and the teams that we worked with themselves. You really needed to transform your organization in terms of values, operations, and practices, and operate and be differently in the world. And we found that with the way, with our reputation, with Loyal, very focused on community-driven work, we had a hard time expanding into those types of projects. So we created Sharehold as sort of like a, a new identity and a much bigger sandbox and playing field. But it's very much the same work. I would say it's just a little bit more expanded in terms of the stakeholders that we bring to the table. It's both community design and organizational design. Today, uh, the the key work is innovation consultancy, as we said, and it's focused on that people-driven change. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about belonging, which is your bread (laughs) and butter these days. I have to be honest, at first hearing about, you know, innovation and belonging, it really sounded very soft skill oriented to me Mm. and less about innovation as a practice. But after looking into it and learning about your work, it seems like the numbers are really there. 
Workplaces with inclusive cultures are six times more likely to innovate and weather market change. Belonging is correlated with a bottom line impact of $52 million a year in savings. Mm-hmm. So how would you describe belonging and belonging in the context of innovation? <laughs> uh, it's really interesting to hear those numbers because I think this focus on belonging has really become a, it was an outgrowth of the work that we are already doing. And it wasn't driven by numbers per se. It was more driven by intuition and knowing that when our stakeholders in a project, whether it's the team or the community members feel that they belong, they're able to more deeply contribute to a project. They're co-invested in a project. There's a sense of mutuality and better solutions are designed out of that process. So belonging is sort of the secret sauce that unlocks the ability to bring your best ideas to the table for you to show up as yourself and for people to build deep trust and relationships with each other, ultimately creating the conditions that enable change. That's such a huge concept. So breaking that further down, are there different kinds of or types of belonging that Mm -hmm. exist? Are there any that are more important than others? Mm. So last year, Sharehold undertook a project called Redesigning Belonging to study the impact of COVID-19 in this general time of uncertainty on belonging at work. And we went into that project sort of with a red flag, knowing that people talk about belonging in lots of different contexts and it meant something different depending on who you were speaking to. And what we found in our research is that there's four different types of belonging. There's foundational belonging, which is the The mere fact that you are a human being that exists, therefore you're worthy of dignity and respect. And that's at work that's correlated with much more um, transactional types of belonging, such as like benefits, um, work-life balance, um, the fact that you are a person who has the ability to contribute. And there's personal belonging, which is the concept of belonging to and being connected to yourself and knowing what value you personally bring to the table Group belonging, which is typically what we talk about when we talk about belonging at work, which is about like inter inter team dynamics, participation, recognition, uh, rewards, as well as societal belonging. So the idea that what happens out in the world impacts how you show up at work. Um, And this is very specific to um, the types of belonging at work. And I wouldn't say that one type of belonging is more important than others. If you look at Brene Brown's work, for example, she talks about this idea of true belonging, the idea that you will uh, only belong to others as much as you belong to yourself. So she really emphasizes this idea of personal belonging. In our research, we found that that is definitely an aspiration, but not necessarily reality for many people, Uh, particularly if you're someone with an identity that differs from uh, others within the group or is generally marginalized within society or in your place of work. Uh, It's not as simple as accepting yourself and showing up as yourself. It's really about the tension that is pulled between all four different types of belonging. So we weren't able to say that one type of belonging is more important than another. What we will say is that the four different types of belonging all exist. They're all interrelated and an employer is responsible for fostering all four types. What's interesting that you brought up kind of that case because someone in your report said, and I quote, most existing organizational structures and cultures aren't designed with someone like Mm -hmm. me in mind, a woman of color and an immigrant. They are designed with whiteness as a norm. And as long as that's the case, I'm always on the edge of that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, going further into belonging, how do you think 
practicing belonging or investing into belonging resources really solves for this? It's interesting because as a community designer and an organizational designer, we came to this work and this research on belonging with group dynamics in mind and with our our backgrounds and expertise from community. And we are not experts in HR. We are not experts in diversity, equity, and inclusion. But it was impossible, particularly in the context of 2020, to not address that topic or become intertwined with it through this research. And what I think is really interesting about belonging, which is definitely interrelated with DEI, is that I I see belonging as a little bit more diagnostic. So when you're able to look at the landscape of belonging within your organization and examine four different types of belonging and um, how they show up, how your um, employees average across the four different types of belonging, you're able to see where you are falling short and where you have opportunities to improve. And it could be that that opportunity for your team is within DEI. It could also be within mental health or benefits or work-life balance, or it could be within um, the way you run your meetings, or it could be about ensuring that each person on your team has a really clear career trajectory and path and a way to contribute that aligns with their personal goals and that you are recognizing their contributions in relationship to how they want to grow. And so I think that belonging can really be used as a as a landscape tool to see where your opportunities are to foster deepness and depth and trust and mutuality within your team and create that unique belonging strategy for your organization. And it's, it's really about listening. I think that there's one specific action item that came out of our research. It was that organizations need to develop a deep capacity to listening to those on their team and not just listening in a superficial way, such as like a pulse survey, but doing like truly deep listening, synthesizing what they're learning, and then taking action and sharing back what those actions will be and creating a sense of accountability within the team. And I think you do such a beautiful job of articulating that, but wondering for companies that are obviously still figuring out how do they really evaluate and articulate the experience of belonging at work? What's like a a tangible way that they can begin to quantify and qualify it? I think that's a little bit tough, and I don't think there's a perfect methodology right now. Um, there are some organizations out there that are measuring belonging, like Culture Amp, for example, I know has um, a belonging survey that's built into their existing tool. We also developed an assessment through our research to measure and evaluate different types of belonging. It's really about creating a space to open the conversation and um, beginning to benchmark it over time. Because what looks like successful or high belonging within one organization or strong belonging is going to be different within a different another organization. It's going to look different between Walmart and, you know, a five-person team of moms. Sure, sure. Thinking back to 2020, the year that you made it happen, when you think about probably the most commonly used word of the year, it's like something like uncertainty or unprecedented (laughs) times. And in your report, the question that you used as the guiding question is how does uncertainty impact one sense of belonging at work? So Mm -hmm. I guess my question is, how does it? (laughs) (laughs) The short answer is that whatever sense of belonging that you were feeling before this time of uncertainty is now significantly more magnified, amplified. It's stronger. Um, So we thought in our research that belonging would decrease dramatically because of the shift to um, 
shelter sheltering in place and working from home. And that was sort of our hypothesis. Although I will say, you know, as design researchers, we don't necessarily go into projects with a hypothesis, but it was sort of like the assumption that we were making. Mm -hmm. But what we found in the data, and then um, we're able to provide context through our design research interviews, is that while there was a uh, decrease in belonging by about five percentage points due to shelter-in-place orders, that specific data point was also corroborated by a survey ran ran during a similar time through Slack we found that while belonging did decrease by five points overall, it actually just wasn't the biggest factor in belonging experiences during this period of time. The different types of of uncertainty that we were experiencing on a national and workplace level were constantly um, accelerating, expanding, being exasperated. Uh, So we started out focusing on initially work from home and this climate of COVID-19 where everyone was very stressed. And then quickly uh, that devolved into like greater economic uncertainty. And then there was the murder of George Floyd and all the protests that happened over the summer and the increased conversation of systemic racism and how that impacts at work. And then, of course, the election that was coming up. There was just so much uncertainty. Big year. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Uncertainty definitely was the word of 2020. And then, you know, we talk about the role of the workplace in all of this. As you said, there's it's one of the categories of belonging. So what are some ways companies can create belonging at work when the future is still, you know, so unclear for everyone? I, I wish I could say 2021 is our year, but we're still we're still figuring it out. I think just acknowledging that we're in this difficult time is probably the first place to start. Acknowledging that your team might be struggling right now and that you might be accountable for hitting deadlines and revenue targets and launch dates, but your team is really, really struggling. Uh, And creating an open space to talk about that or to not talk about it, but providing time off so that people can process on their own time is a really powerful way to just open and begin that practice. That'd be my first move. I think something else that is really interesting about this specific practice and part of your work is the fact that you are, as a consultant, coming into these other companies, um, and I'm sure there are some barriers that you experience. In all of your years consulting, what are some challenges that you've really seen with implementing something such as belonging? I would would say in 2021, I would anticipate people will be hiring us to implement belonging strategies. But right now where this work is, is that this is an integral integrated part of our work. And so people are, our clients are bringing us in with that lens in mind. So what I do anticipate as being some of the challenges is that there's a lot of vulnerability that is required in this work, a lot of introspection. And oftentimes when our clients or sometimes when clients bring us in for these types of projects, they're bringing us in for a specific goal. Maybe it's uh, like, for example, we worked with a client in 2020. It was a a nonprofit based in New York City that was providing relief to New Yorkers impacted by COVID-19. And they were looking to rapidly digitally scale their operational practices. So their goal was team driven, but the outcome ultimately was customer driven. Uh, the more that they're able to focus on their team, the better they are able to serve their end users. And the reverse is also true, 
when an organization is looking to serve their end users, sometimes the work they need to do is actually internal to them. Uh, and we saw that in our work with the American Medical Association, for example, when they are looking to revamp the way in which they engage their physician members, the work that they needed to do was not actually with their physicians, it was mostly within their own team. Um, and so I think some of the challenges that we come up against is that people are unprepared to examine themselves in a really deep manner. And there's some resistance because it requires you to examine what is my role in this outcome? How do I personally contribute to this? What might I need to give up to achieve this greater outcome? And that can be very existential. It can be very threatening. Uh, so it requires a level of self-awareness and vulnerability and really challenging, difficult conversations. I think there's something else to be said about that internal work is that there is a difference between community and belonging work as well as individualism and then Mm -hmm. the role of diversity of thought and all of that. I think oftentimes one of the problems we're seeing is that we hire people that look like us, that sound like Mm -hmm. us, that come from the same background as us. And then maybe there is this increased sense of community um, and belonging because everyone is similar and has the same point of reference. But you know, in theory, you could say this is a great thing when, of course, it is so problematic and and stands in the way of of diversity. So how would you say you balance diversity and people's difference while also creating a shared space and psychological safety to foster that belonging? Well, creating psychological safety within a team is a little bit different than creating psychological safety within a community. Like, yes, they are two sides of the same coin, though typically Our challenge is creating the openness within a team to bring in more diverse voices from the community or vice versa. Oftentimes, particularly when you're when you're working with a team that is a little bit more homogenous, they make a lot of assumptions about what their end users and community needs. They might have like one or two conversations uh, and be like, "Okay, we got it. We know what the solution is. And then they run with it. Um, So it's really about building that muscle and practice and ongoing effort so that they can have much more openness to different types of conversations with community members over the long term, not just through the duration of our project, but after our engagement ends. So it's building a new capacity and a new muscle for them. And in terms of creating psychological safety within that dynamic, uh, it requires a lot of personal resilience. So oftentimes our work when we're teaching design thinking methodologies, it's a really big focus on a shift in mindset and um, demonstrating how when you bring in more voices, when you bring in users, you create the opportunity for a stronger, more impactful, higher performing outcome. And sometimes that means citing stats like from McKinsey, for example, I know that they have a I believe it's called the design index where they have shown that companies that invest in design thinking perform their peers like two to one when they um, bring a more user centric mindset to their work. And sometimes Mm -hmm. like pointing to numbers and case studies like that. But oftentimes when you bring a client into direct relationship with the community member for the first time, a light bulb goes off for them. And it's it's a really transformative for them to hear directly from an end user or a community member what their experiences are like. And once you have that uh, personal narrative and lived experience, it's really hard to argue with numbers or to um, push back on that lived experience. Like we've had 
like for example, a few years ago, we had a project with a, a really large SaaS software company that was not particularly user centric. And we were conducting what we called a board of customers where we created a group of about 14 different target customers to help them develop a new product. And their product team was not excited about this project. It was very much driven by the design team. But by the end of the project, uh, we had sometimes up to 30 different developers dialed in on these user interviews because it was so fascinating to them to watch people actually use their products and provide feedback in real time. And that kind of experience can really be transformative. So it's about creating the embodied experience and then sort of targeting your data and your talking points to the stakeholder if they are more numbers driven. It's a little bit different from case to case. Again, to a lot of people in the innovation industries, human-centric design, user-centric design is is so, it's been drilled into us for so long. But then a lot of these stories that you see about successful startups are about how the founder had this issue and then they resolved it. When mm-hmm. in reality, you should really not just be building a product or a company for yourself, but for the users that you are ultimately serving, which aren't just going to be yourself. Yeah. I think a lot of smaller companies They're like, oh, well, I'm a user of this product, so I know what this pain point is like. And that will take you far for a period of time, but there's more than just your perspective. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I I think something else that's really interesting about you and your story is that you yourself are a minority founder, you're a female founder, and you're also in the consulting industry, which is also very male-driven. Has that played into your entrepreneurial journey? And, And if so, how? Absolutely. It has not been easy as a woman or a queer woman navigating a consulting practice. And I think there's a lot of discounting that happens in conversations. People automatically will discount our rates, the amount of work that we're able to do, the team that we have. Uh, So it's a constant practice of building credibility. And I think that was something that I was very insecure about when I started my first company in 2012. At some point in time, though, you just have to sort of be like, F it, you know, uh, like here is what I do. Here's what I am. And this is how much it costs and, uh, just go with it. Uh, it's been very frustrating to see both in the design world, as well as the community world, that so much of the work is driven by female teams. Uh, there are many, many female design students. There are many, many female community builders, but the thought leaders nearly always tend to be white men. And it's certainly a factor. And I don't know what the solution is for it, except to build more networks like Win. But I know that even within my own community, like for example, a couple of years ago, my friend Lauren started a group called um, the Design Ladies Mastermind. And it was because we all noticed that the people who seem to be super successful in our fields were white men, though all of our peers were mostly women and people of marginalized identities. But of course, it's not just about being a woman. I think after a period of time, when we started growing this group and bringing in more members informally, we realized that it was really about marginalized identities in design, not about women in design. So we actually dropped ladies from the from the group. Now it's just called Design Mastermind. And we have people of various gender identities, but all people who identify as marginalized identities in design. Um, so it certainly has been a factor and it's it's been super challenging and hard. I, I'm very excited to hear about what's next for you. So I'd love to end the podcast by asking you the question we ask all of our guests, and that is, 
where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, <laughs> one year from now, and 10 years from now? Oh, this question is so hard because it's the first month now. It's like the first week of January in 2021. In a month, we're going to have a new president. Hopefully more people will be vaccinated. And I would like to believe that we're on the road to recovery and moving from a place of just purely survival towards more being more future thinking. So the optimist in me would like to say that a month from now, we are able to see a light at the end of the tunnel and we are able to identify next steps forward. I would like to see that a year from now, we're, we're able to create a new benchmark for what this new standard of change and innovation will look like that is significantly more inclusive and accountable to a wide variety of stakeholders. And 10 years from now, I hope this conversation that we're having today is no longer relevant. I hope that it's like so well integrated and that this has been um, such like a transformative period of time that organizations like Win have worked themselves out of a job. I mean, I, I hope so too. I think we'll just rebrand and just call it innovation. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so, so much for joining us today, Sarah. And I wish you and your company all the best. You too. Thank you so much for having me, Zoya. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win Women in Innovation, and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.